Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my new friend, Tim Ringgold. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. Tim is calling in from Southern California. We are just getting to know each other for the first time, and I'll give you a a little bit of an introduction of what we're going to talk about in this podcast. Tim has a website. We'll link to it in the website called timringgold.com. And I'll read just a few sentences from this website as part of the introduction. Everyone reaches for something when they get stressed. It's not always drugs and alcohol. It's the fridge, the phone, and the remote control, control too. However, anyone can make music. And through the power of rhythm, I'm pairing phrase a little bit, Tim helps heal and bring hope. And so Tim is a um, um, pretty noted public speaker. And you'll see that if you go to his website. He has a degree in music therapy, and he's using that expertise and the role of music to heal, to bring hope, to reduce anxiety, to help people move forward in their life. And so um, Tim is not a, most of my guests are connected to or members of the LDS church. Tim is in a different Christian church. Um, we started with prayer. We share a lot of common ground, Tim and I. And um, as you are mostly LDS listeners, I think what Tim will, is sharing will be helpful to you. We'll kind of do three segments of this podcast. One, we'll talk about the role of music and Tim's expertise to heal and bring hope and why he's a noted speaker. Um, we'll second talk about his personal story. He has um, three children. He has two living children and one daughter who is 11 years old today, but she has passed away. And we'll talk about her. And um, as part of his living children, we'll also talk about his daughter that is bisexual. So Tim is the parent, like many of you are, of an LGBTQ child. And he is dealing with many of the same issues that you are, that are parents, is how to navigate this road as a parent. And and being connected to a Christian school and a Christian faith, um, Tim is navigating how to um, walk that road and has really good insights. Um, is that a good introduction, Tim? Anything you want to add or correct? No, that was great, Richard. Appreciate that. Um, and Tim, I lived in Orange County, so when I called Tim's phone number, it's the first three digits are 714. I once had a 714 area code, so I'm reminiscing about 20 years ago when my wife and I lived in Orange County, where our first daughter um, had her, was born in Hogue Hospital. So we love Orange County, and we miss those days living there, if any of you listeners. Um, let's do this music therapy um, segment first, and just by way of introduction, and my wife and I were on a family vacation driving with um, one of our children, and this wild thought came to my mind at age 58 that God could have created the earth without music. Um, the earth would still function. We could have children and families and jobs and careers if we just, he could have made it without music. And then the thought came to my mind, he knew we needed music to sort of get us through really difficult times that exist in earth life. And I just so great. I have no musical talent, Tim, <laughs> but I hear music and I hear songs and I hear gifted performers and they bless my soul and they bring, give me hope and healing. So tell us about, just take it from here, wherever you want to go with your degree, why you got in this space, what you do in this space and how you help others. Well, thanks. Uh, 
I, I wouldn't want to imagine the world without music. Uh, that's a good thought experiment. But you know what's really interesting about music is it uh, the bone flute that someone has somewhere in some, you know, um, uh, how do I say this? Let me, let me start again. There is a flute uh, which is carbon dated to roughly 40,000 years old made out of the femur of a now extinct bear from Eastern Europe. And a bone flute is relatively advanced technology for that time. In order to be able to drill holes at intervals in one side of the bone without shattering it, and just the understanding that by covering some of them as you pass air through it, you could create different pitches and pitch intervals. That's rather advanced for 40,000 years ago in human history. Um, music has been a part of the human history. It, there's, there's no recorded history that predates music. In fact, music as we understand it today predates recorded history. And what we understand about it is that it's what we would call a proto-language, which means like a pre-language. Now, we don't have to look anywhere past our own children to understand this because music is a proto-language developmentally. So children speak, or no, they don't speak, they sing before they speak. And they phonate, they make sound uh, before they understand language. And moms in all cultures sing to their babies. And it really doesn't matter what they sing because the children don't have language yet. But what the children understand is the timbre of their mom's voice, they recognize that from the womb, and they recognize the melody. And this is what's so fascinating, Richard. What, they, what ethnomusicologists have found is that all moms in all cultures sing the same melodies to their children. They follow the same, like, music theory, which, you know, nobody actually studies music theory unless you're a geek like me. But all moms intuitively, instinctively sing the same way their babies around the earth. They haven't found any place where they sing a different style. All lullabies follow the same kind of upward, downward, gentle, wilting, melodic contour. So we know that just developmentally, music is there from the very beginning. And before humans had language, before they had spoken language, they had sung language and they had rhythm. And so it's just fascinating that music is such a primal, central part of the human experience. And my company is called Sonic Divinity because for me, music is the sound of God. That's the connection point. And so for me, it makes total sense that music's been, you know, at the center of the human experience throughout because, you know, if you want to just take it that God's been at the center of the human experience throughout, well, what was God's conduit to his children? It's music. It's like, you know, to my knowledge, there's no official religion that worships without music. It's, it's music and worship are integrally related because I don't know about you, but some of my wow. like mount, mountaintop moments where I feel most connected to my God is inside of worship music. You know, I'm moved by a sermon, but I am moving to the music, like when the music, when I'm singing and I'm strumming my guitar or I'm just singing and swaying and moving to the music, when I'm in the music, you know, and as a listener, you know what it's like when you're in the music, like it's like you're in music time. 
for me, that's God time. And so I just think it's a, it's just, it's an integral piece of the human experience. And my degree in music therapy has really been about creating language uh, to understand this phenomenon in a non-spiritual way so that I can apply it in clinical settings as a healthcare provider, which is pretty fascinating because we all know music's good for our mood and we just touched on how good it is for our spirit. But what research has been really uh, showing us, particularly in the last 20 years since they kind of invented the fMRI, is that the brain on music is fascinatingly unique. There is no stimulus in nature as complex as the brain as music. It, it requires every subregion of the brain to fire up and work together in concert in order to process the music. Uh, it pulls us into the present moment in order to process it in real time. And if we try to engage our body with it, whether that's tapping or snapping or clapping or humming or singing, boy, that is heavy lifting for the human brain. So kind of what my career has morphed into was I started out as a kid who, you know, I was on stage when I was four singing and I was raised Catholic. And by the time I was 16, I was singing in St. Peter's Square for Pope John Paul II. No way. Seriously. Yeah. During, yeah, Wednesday of Holy Week. Wow. It was the highest, like the highest moment as, you know, and, and I was a deeply spiritual kid. And I was raised inside of the Catholic faith because, well, that's what my family was. So, you know, you kind of, when you're a kid, you just inherit the faith of your family. So that, but to, to be the one to get the call to go to Rome to sing, I was with my choir, but I was the soloist that day. And it was my voice I could hear bouncing around the colonnade. And I was, there were 13,000 Catholic pilgrims from all around the world in that square that day. And to be God's instrument on that Wednesday in, you know, April of 1989, you know, I'll never, never forget that. I still have the picture in my office of, our, my choir and his holiness because that was just such a, a privileged moment but it you know it really wasn't until i hit my lowest point that i really understood i really understood the healing power because richard in 1995 also in april strange a lot of things a lot of things in april in my life uh my five best friends were murdered wow yeah I went to five funerals in four days. Now try to try to just wrap your brain around that, listener. Like I got up, buried a friend, and I'm gonna be honest here, got as hammered as possible immediately afterwards, passed out, and then woke up and had to do the whole thing over again the next day, and then the next day, and the next day. So that was just trauma, pain, suffering beyond anything I could have imagined or experienced. And I sang, interestingly, I sang a song at all my friends' funerals wow. to say goodbye. It was, and in fact, it was a song I'd written for them. And my community embraced me for how healing it was for them. But it, Richard, it tore me up to sing it. But the night of the last funeral, I went and saw a famous musician play live music in my town. And for the first two hours since I got the news, I found peace. No amount of drugs 
alcohol, pornography, cable TV, food, numbed that pain all week. And I reached for everything. Nothing worked. But the music did. And after the show, I walked up to that famous musician and I said, hey, man, listen, there's, you know, there's reasons why you're in this town tonight playing the show that you know of, but here's one that you didn't. Like, last Tuesday, my five best friends were murdered and I've been in hell since, and you're the first person to pull me out. And I put my hand right on his chest and through my arm, I gave him back the energy, the peace he gave me. And I said, thank you. And tears, Richard, tears burst out of the guy's eyes. And it was like right in that moment, like I got what my community felt when I played because now I was receiving and heal being healed by someone else's music. And it was like, a, like the circle was complete right there. And, and right in that moment, I like my purpose was revealed. And I just, since that moment in 1995, I've just dedicated my life to helping other people reach for music in their toughest times. And that's what's led me to today. Now my company uh, is, you know, we uh, provide over 200 hours of music therapy a month to children, adolescents, adults, and the elderly. And I work with healthcare professionals to help them stay sober, those who are in recovery uh, from addiction, because they're in a very uniquely high-stress environment. And so they're very at risk for relapse. And, uh, and I go to conferences and I go to retreats for mental health professionals, medical professionals, teaching them how to use music for pain management, how to reach for music to relieve stress fast. And that kind of catches us up to where I am today. Well, I have a few tears in my eyes. Um, to be honest, I, it's everything you've said just feels so right to me. Um, I wrote down one sentence you mm -hmm. said in particular as you talked about why you decided to, agree, to get a degree in music therapy, a clinical setting. So you could take your skills and expertise into a clinical setting as a healthcare provider. Um, mm. And I love that. I love the academic training you've got so you can take this skill um, in sort of a, a way to help people on a larger scale. Uh, I think about my own experience with music, Tim, and the way I use music and the way I feel the spirit and receive personal revelation is a term we use in our church is sort of ideas about what I should do as a father and individual. And a lot of that comes as I'm listening to music. It always has. I've never mm. really thought of that. I pray at my bedside every morning and every night, but most of what I receive from God comes when I'm outside walking in the morning, listening to music. And and, That's beautiful. And most of my healing and, you know, there's a healing element of music. I've never really thought about that. And I also resonate when you talk about a good sermon does move me at times, but often it's the music that brings tears to my yeah. eyes and kind of heals my heart. Talk more yeah. about, um, I was a, in the LDS church. We have a lay ministry, as you may know, and I was responsible for a congregation of of Latter-day Saints um, that were unmarried in their 20s and good men and women, but boy, that group in particular has got so much stress and anxiety that not because they're trying to turn away from God or sin, they turn to drugs, alcohol, pornography. And the more I sat with them, the more I recognized that wasn't rebellion. It wasn't a desire to do the wrong thing. They just, it was a coping mechanism to deal with stress, anxiety, loneliness, 
the need for connection. And talk, if you were a guest speaker in my congregation, talking to, you know, the men and women that are really struggling with some of those things, just talk to them. Wow. Well, I just got to say, you just gave me chills because so many people misunderstand addiction. And what you just said as it is someone reaching for relief. It's somebody who's trying to cope. And what, what people, if, so you and I have a nervous system, we have a brain, but in our course of traditional education, you know, elementary, middle and high school, and maybe some college, we don't learn really much about how they really work as a mechanism other than we have them. And what I want everybody to understand is two main things. One is your nervous system has, it's like a three-speed bike, all right? You've got like your first gear, which is like your default, relaxed, chill, ho-hum, everyday gear. And then you've got this second gear, which is your stressed gear, your fight-or-flight gear, like red flags, like to the battle station, go, go, go. And then you've got a trauma gear, which is uh, kind of when you see the, the animal get caught by the lion and it freezes, right? That freeze gear, like that's the trauma gear. So you've got these three gears. You've got a three-speed machine in your head trying to keep up with this world. And, you know, it's not designed to be stressed all the time. It's designed, remember, our brain and our nervous system are very old They've evolved very, very slowly, and certainly prior to any modern technology. And so they're not designed to be stressed chronically. They're designed to occasionally, Richard, occasionally outrun a tiger or fight off another tribe. Tens and tens and tens of thousands of years of reinforcement that we're going to be chill most of the time, and then occasionally we got to run or fight. That's it. So that second gear, that gear, that stressed gear, all hands on deck, fight, kill, or die mode, that's an old, old part of our brain. It does not have any understanding of the past. It doesn't have any understanding of the future. And the creative part of our brain, when that part of the nervous system enacts, all our best resources actually shut offline. Our creative side, I would say also our creator's side, like the part where we feel when we feel most connected, that part of the brain is offline when you're stressed. So you make terrible decisions. And anyone who's listening to my voice, you know this in your own experience. Like you send your worst emails. You make your <laughs> worst comments. You send the worst texts, voicemails. Everything you've ever regretted, you said when you were stressed. Because the part of your brain that says, that's a really bad idea. Remember what happened when we did that last time? Make no mistake. If you do that again, here's what's going to happen. That all is offline. So the stressed brain is reaching out in a panic mode. And all it's trying to do is self-soothe. It's trying to shut off that response as fast as possible. It does not care what's healthy what's legal, or what's socially acceptable. It only cares about what works. Now, as an infant, let's go back developmentally. When you're a baby, 
and you're cold or you're tired or you're hungry, what do you do? You cry. It's a normal response. And what a baby does is it attempts to self-soothe when no one immediately is there to soothe it. So one of the behaviors a baby does is it sucks its thumb. Another one is it rocks. Another one is it will, um, like, it, uh, kind of a tactile response where they will, it will hold and pet or caress something soft. And what they're trying to do is regulate their nervous system. They don't know that, but that's what's happening. They're just trying to turn that gear off. And as we grow, we reach out into the world around us for things that will self-soothe us. And we bump into things in our external environment that work. Now, again, the part of the brain, the amygdala that is responsible for all this doesn't care. Doesn't care if it's legal. Doesn't care if you're going to get in trouble. Doesn't care if you're going to get expelled. Doesn't care if you're going to get fired. It just knows that when I do this one thing, I feel better. And so what you want to understand is that that second gear, when you go into that gear, your brain triggers a response called a craving. And a craving is your brain's way of trying to self-soothe. And I heard Dr. Gabor Mate say it this way, and he blew my mind when he said it. A craving is nothing more than your brain's way of trying to love itself. So this is all just happening under the radar. This is your nervous system by design. So, you know, the pleasure train, the party bus, those concepts, those that left the station, we're not talking about that. What we're talking about is the stressed nervous system trying to self-soothe and reaching out into its environment for anything that will do the job. So the word I like to use is kryptonite because it's like, you know, you could be Superman, Richard, in like six areas of your life, but this one thing, you're just powerless over. And it just, like, it's like your spine, just like you're in the presence of it, and you just got no spine. And you know, intellectually, it's not a good idea, it's not good for you, gonna get in trouble, gonna feel shame, right? Gonna, oh, you know it all. It's like driving... That's what it's like. It's like driving towards a brick wall, but you're riding shotgun and you can't reach over and hit the brake or grab the wheel. And you've hit that wall before and you know what it feels like. And you experience this powerlessness. It's bizarre. This powerlessness over being able to do anything about it. And so as somebody who's in long-term recovery for sex addiction, my kryptonite was girls, then women, and then pornography. And to this day, so pornography honest. is still my kryptonite. You're so honest. And uh, so I just, uh, my heart goes out to every human who feels shame when they reach for something to soothe the pain because that's their nervous system doing its job. Well, I've never heard anybody frame it up as well as you have, Tim, just the feelings I have for the YSAs, that's the age group that we call internally in our church, young single adults um, that we're working to put porn behind them. They recognize they, this is something that they, in our church, we teach it's a sin that we need to sort of free ourselves mm-hmm. in this, but they were the best men and women that I've ever met and sat with. And the shame they felt um, because of this 
was almost was just dis- so difficult for them. But I love just what you said because you de-shamed this experience and you helped mm-hmm. us understand, um, I would say from a clinical standpoint, of exactly what's going on here. So my empathy has been pretty high for this age group anyway, but it just went up a few more degrees <laughs> because I better understand and your visualization of being you know, in the shot, I loved what you said with the intellectual side of your brain that recognizes what's going on here they don't want to do. And I love where you said it's like riding shotgun, um, driving into a brick wall you've driven in before. Um, That's a beautiful segment. You know, I hope every parent and anybody that's responsible to help others or ourselves overcome addictions understands that because you just, I think one of the first steps in my clinical understanding is to de-shame and bring more education and understanding to the process because then I develop better tools than to put addiction behind me. Um, just keep talking. I think you have, I think you know what one want to say next, or I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about how music can be part of the solution in this. So I don't, you know, so I do better. Yeah, that's a, that's kind of the next step, right? So I love the fact that you're pointing out the shame because people who experience any kind of addictive behavior, whether it's food or it's alcohol or it's drugs or it's porn or it's shopping, it doesn't really matter what the thing is. The key is whether or not you feel shame afterwards. And only you know that. And no one can tell you you don't feel shame if you feel shame. Like, that's a deeply disempowering, very powerful emotion, shame. And so if you're feeling shame, shame is stressful to the brain. So now here's the vicious circle. You do a behavior, it relieves whatever the stress was in the moment, but now you feel shame. So guess what the brain does? It issues another craving, so it won't feel the shame. And that's the addictive cycle. And that's why people can't break free because they're caught up in a, it's like a feedback loop. The behavior is half of the circle. The shame is the other half. That's what swings the behavior right back around again. And it literally doesn't know what else to do. It just, this primitive part of the brain just knows, well, this works, this works, this works. And it just keeps thinking about it. And, you know, the Latin word uh, for enslavement is addictio. And so what would happen is you would lose your freedom if you couldn't pay your bill. Like if you owed somebody money, you would become their servant. You'd become addicted to them. You became their servant. And so you were no longer free. And boy, is that the right word when it comes to the nervous system. You are in this circle that you are not free. To You just feel like you are chained to the behavior and to the feelings and that there's no escape. And so my heart goes out to everybody who feels it. And you don't need to shame someone else over their behavior. Trust me, Hmm. they're feeling enough on their own. You can't punish the pain out of somebody. That's one of the biggest mistakes our culture makes. And that's a quote from a dear friend of mine who's an addiction specialist named Joe Polish. You cannot punish the pain out of somebody. So, where does music fit in all this? Well, the fascinating thing about music is that, remember I was telling you about the three gears. So the, we're, we're meant to run in this normal, what we'll call it default mode. When we're in our stressed state, 
music, if we listen to music we enjoy or we engage in music making, it turns the gear. It shifts the gear back. It turns off the stress response. So it's a very useful tool to be able to regulate the nervous system. And again, the reason I keep talking about that is it's, it's like a, it's a completely different way to think, A, about addiction, and B, about music. Because when people realize, oh, I have a nervous system regulation issue. Well, where's the shame in that? Like, there's no shame there. That's like they barely understand what they just said. And now if I say, well, here's a tool that can regulate the nervous system that also it, it creates a pleasure response in the brain at the same time. So your brain will actually start to entrain to music, meaning like sync up with the idea of reaching for music. Oh, well, that just created music as a completely new shape for me. And for me, I, I want people to understand music is a self-care tool. It's, a, it's an emotional regulation. It's a nervous system regulation tool. And, you know, to be honest, everybody's prescribed themselves music before, Richard. If you've ever made a playlist or you've mm. made a blank CD or back in the day when I was coming up, you made a blank tape, you already prescribed yourself music. And, you know, many of us will make mixtapes to help us in our activities of our daily living. You know, whether it's exercise or studying or cleaning or working uh, or road trips or commuting, we'll have playlists that help us do those activities better. They really optimize the brain for that very thing. And what I want to tell people is that you can have a power playlist. This is one of the key ways to reach for music that I talk about in my book called Sonic Recovery is that have a power playlist, which is, it's only three songs. You can have more, but you only need three for this to work, where you put three songs that inspire you, fire you up, uplift you. And what you do is you put those three songs on a playlist when you're feeling good, and you just have them on your phone. And when stress strikes, you reach for your playlist, and you put it on, and you get up, and you go for a walk, like you mentioned, walking in nature and music. And you walk to the beat and you just hum along or sing along either in your head or out loud with the music. And you just kind of engage your body in the rhythmic, you know, making a rhythmic connection to the music. And by the time you come back on that walk, Richard, your nervous system will have reset and you will have turned off that stress response. Why that's so important is that the sooner you can turn off your stress response, the, the less often you're going to have to deal with cravings. And what everybody wants to needs to know about cravings is you're not designed to withstand them. You're designed to do them. That's the design of a craving. Your brain triggers them for a reason. So you do the behavior. So this idea that you're supposed to be able to resist cravings is I don't know who said it or thought it, but it has no basis in you know in the clinic. Your brain triggers it so you'll do it. So the real game is. How do I avoid those cravings in the first place? And the moment I start to feel my heart rate pick up or my breathing pick up or my, my thinking starts to increase in speed, I need to reach for music and I need to reach for my power playlist. And that's one of the easiest things because whether or not you consider yourself musical, we all have access to music now 24-7, 365 on our smartphones. That's the best place to start. Wow. Um, I wish I'd listened to you 
five years ago before I sat with hundreds of young men and young women working to manage their cravings. I loved how you actually de-shamed cravings, Tim, um, and sort of said that's part of the normal human body because I think de-shaming cravings, I call them triggers or just a little chemical spill. You yep. just feel the beginning of a cycle starting. And I've always felt yep. there's still agency at that point. Um, and it's sort of what we do in that moment that is sort of key. But I loved how indeed we're not meant to just white knuckle it. Um, we're meant to sort of develop tools to manage those cravings and that those cravings will pass. And I like what you said. It's a reset of the central nervous system. And I love the I love the three song playlist. That's so simple, Tim, and so powerful. Wow. Well, you want to make it easy for people, you know, because if it seems hard, especially when you're stressed, you know, if it seems hard, you're not going to have any buy-in. But if you're like, I can do that. Like if, if I'm annoyed and you present me with an option and my brain goes, well, I could do that. Now I know I got a shot. So I think that the, the power playlist is one of the best places, you know, like it's like a f first line of defense. How long you know? does three songs because it's take? Two swipes. Well, you know, the average, you know, you take pick, you know, pick typical songs are usually three or four minutes long. So, so this is 10 you know, minutes -ish. It's, it's really only a 10 to 12 minute experience. And, and, you know, I mean, I hear it all the time from, cause you know, I'm at conferences and I'm at retreats uh, for talking about, you know, how to use music to manage stress. And I bring up the power playlist and people will be like, I've had, you know, I don't even need to be given a certain song. Like I have such a powerful connection to the certain song. I don't even need to get all the way through that song before I'm reset. And I'm like, I get it. I hear you. This is like, you know, super powerful stuff. And, you know, music is always thought of as entertainment. And then, you know, we also think about it maybe as education in our culture. So I don't think we truly appreciate in our culture, just how powerful music is as a, you know, a, a tool. And that's really where I feel like on a mission, because I know that after I speak, people think about and use music differently than before I speak. And so for me, my mission is to speak as often as possible to empower people to really be able to lean on it and trust it and, and recognize, oh, this is like validated, evidence-based, you know, research-based. And now they, they can feel confident in reaching for music again. And you know, Richard, for me, I'm in my mid-40s now. I got school-age kids. A lot of my, um, what would I call them, peers, you know, my age group, we got busy. <laughs> you know, we got busy with careers. We got busy with kids. We got busy with our aging parents. And before you know it, we're listening to podcasts and audiobooks and talk radio. And, you know, where where was the music? Do you, you know, the 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 golden age of when we're like 14 to 24 and we are leaning on music six times a day and then we become adults and we just kind of work and we we just forget the healing and transformative power that, that music was for us when we were that age and could be again it's sometimes it's just kind of like a little bit of a, a retraining yeah my mind's just going um just this is really good stuff. I, for fun, I'm going to read an Instagram post that I sent today <laughs> um, on my personal Instagram page. It starts with working to solve porn, porn, question mark. 
It's usually not rebellion, but a coping mechanism to deal with stress, anxiety, loneliness, or a, or escape the realities of your situation. Yeah, it's a sin. But don't go down the shame road of self-loathing and thinking you're unworthy of God's love. Satan doesn't win if you sin. He wins if he can get you to believe the lie that you're unworthy of God's love. Nothing you can do can take you outside of God's love. You don't need to be perfect today. Make steady progress. Learn from your slip-ups. God loves you. And it's not quite, you know, I don't have any music in there, but it, I think we're both beating to a lot of the same drummer of trying to de-shame and bring hope. And I love totally my Instagram post doesn't have any tools in that brief post to sort of do what I'm inviting people to do. And I think God plays a role, but God blesses us through other people or the things like music that are here as part of our mortal experience. So I've often felt like my prayers are answered through others or through music. So I do, you know, I had a conversation with God one night in my church office and I said, God, did you know it'd be so hard for these young people to overcome their challenges? And he kind of talked to me, Tim. He said, yeah, I, I didn't set them here to fail. And he put, sort of put it on me. So what have I done? What have I provided to help them? And I didn't think of music at the time. Um, but it just dawned on me that that's one of the things that God has created here in the earth life to help his children overcome and the challenges that they face with stress and anxiety, which I assume are on the increase. It certainly feels like that. And so the role of music in our lives to help move forward in a helpful way is just part of God's plan. Are you okay with that? I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. And I, I just love the fact that that was your post today. And I didn't know that. And we're having this conversation. I mean, that's just God smiling downright ass going, tee hee, I saw this coming. I love that. Well, and Richard, listen, you have to start with the awareness. Like you have to create this, this that there's this distinction even available to somebody to understand like, oh, that's what's happening when I'm reaching out for a harmful substance or behavior is I'm reaching out to try to relieve the pain. And this is really important for parents to understand. Like, and you can look in your own experience, like you're really stressed out by something. Yeah. Well, pain comes in four flavors, physical pain, emotional pain, social pain, and spiritual pain. And let me tell you, one of the spiritual pains I grew up with as a Catholic was that I was going to hell for my sins. I was crying myself to sleep by the time I was eight years old. Now, I have an eight-year-old boy now, and it breaks my heart to imagine him in his room in my home, crying himself to sleep for fear of eternal torment in hell for sin. That is not something he's up to. That's not something he's able to really understand and grasp. But that was hammered into me as a kid. And that was spiritual pain. I was terrified, terrified, crying, apologizing at night. God, I'm so sorry. I forgot to say to our father last night. I'm so sorry. Please, please forgive me. And it began this journey where I wasn't, it wasn't until my 40s that I realized that I had such pain as a child in my spiritual beliefs. And I think it's really important for us to be, we have to really be careful with our children, because developmentally, what they can grasp around the idea of sin, sin is a complex concept. 
it's not, I don't believe it's black and white. And I, I just, for me, the, the where I fall back on it is there's, you know, going back to Latin, because I'm a word nerd, it means without. It means miss the mark. Like, and here's where I, I kind of shed the shame on, on sin is that it's going to sound funny. I'm about to go like, and I promise I'm not going off on a tangent, but when you've ever tried to do a home improvement project, did you ever, did it ever work out that you went to Home Depot only once? (laughs) No, and luckily I live five minutes away from Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing as a one-trip job, right? And yet, in our heads, every time we start a project, we're like, all right, I need my supplies. I'm going to go to Home Depot. And in your head, you think, once, right? That's the mark. I'm going to go once, get my supplies, come home, do the job, job done. What do we do? we go back and my wife and I have an ongoing joke in our our house. And I hope listeners are laughing out of recognition. We don't judge our home Depot or our home improvement projects by how much they cost. We judge them by how many trips to home Depot they took two trip job, three trip job, four trip job, five trip job. Right. But we never consider self loathing, anger, blame, fault, guilt, or shame over the fact that it takes us more than one trip to Home Depot for us to get everything we need would never occur to us. Makes sense, right? That's just like not even on the playing field. And so I think about being a child of God, like a little tiny human. There is no way. There's no way, and, and you you know with your own children, when they have a temper tantrum, when they're four, developmentally, they're not able to regulate their emotions yet. They have a meltdown, and you love them, because you know they're not equipped at four to act like a 40-year-old. And so where I've come full circle with this is like, I miss the mark over and over. I, you know what? No, this is it. I miss the mark until I don't. I miss the mark until I don't. I'm aiming for the bullseye all the time. I don't hit the bullseye every time. It took me eight colleges and 16 years to get my degree. Wow. Eight colleges. And I went to a college prep school in Connecticut for high school. Like I was a black sheep in my house. (laughs) I missed the mark eight or seven times because I kept, I just kept screwing up. I kept missing. And I didn't have it all together. Whatever it was, I didn't have it yet or yet or yet. And after a while, I really wore on people. Like, they were really bummed out. Like, we expected more out of you, Timmy. You know, we expected you to have a degree degree by now and a good job by now. We expected you to be here by now and there by now. And I'm like, well, who gave you my the, the, the plans for my life. As far as I know, like, you know, I don't know the plans for my, my own children's lives. Like, so in terms of having expectations over anyone else's behavior or mine, all I can do, Richard, is aim for the bullseye and fire. And I either hit the mark or I miss the mark. And, and then I just do it again and I do it again. And that has been a long journey of trying to heal this, this shame of being a sinner, like that it's, it's who I am. 
I was like, no, 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 no. How can I be a sinner and be a child of God that God loves me at the same time? To me, people called me that. I felt like they were mutually exclusive, so there was no room. And that, like you said, that's when Satan wins. Like, gotcha, cornered you into like a little thought corner. So just, I miss the mark until I don't. And that's the best I can do as, as one of his children. I love your four categories of pain, Tim. Um, and I love your journey with your own faith and the shame. And no God I believe in would want an, any eight-year-old boy to go to bed and feel that way. And I recognize that a lot of faiths create a feeling of not good enough, not worthy enough shame. And I love the way you, even with your honesty about your own academic journey, <laughs> That is unique. I love the way you just own that. And it's not, there's no shame around that, that you just own that beautiful path that you've taken to get you where you are, and then can use that as a way to give de-shame other people that have just paths that may not be just lockstep with others' expectations. So I love yeah. that. I love your purse. I love your vulnerability with your own story as part of your ministry. Um, People have heard my quote. It's a Brene, Brene Brown quote um, that you may be aware of. Shame says, I am bad versus I did something bad. And so I love, you know, that all of us are beloved children of God um, and that we're worthy of their love and nothing we can do can take them outside. Nothing we can do to cause God to stop loving us. And I just love what you're teaching here. I'd I want to get to these other, we could do the whole podcast on this segment. I'd love to close this segment with either one of two things, either just talk directly to someone who feels their addiction is so hopeless. What you said doesn't apply. Hopefully nobody feels that way or just any other thoughts you'd like to say, share before we go to another segment. Yeah. You know, one, you're not alone. Um, trust me because I remember when I read my first step uh, in a 12-step meeting, and your first step, you write about your life story, particularly the areas of your life where you were like powerless and your life was unmanageable. So it's it's kind of a train wreck. You're, you're, you're kind of writing about like the worst of the worst of your journey. And what you're doing in your first step is you're kind of like shining the light on all the shame. You're kind of calling it out. And... I remember reading my first step at a meeting and I never looked up, not once, because it was, again, the same thing. I was so embarrassed about all the things I was about to say out loud that I had allowed myself to think or do or feel. And at one point, during I finish and everybody st starts to, you know, just share feedback like, thank you for this. I heard myself in this and I heard myself in this. And one of the guys said, I wish you had looked up while you were reading your story so you could have seen a room full of men nodding in agreement with everything you've been through in some way. And I thought that was so powerful, Richard, because with shame and addiction, I think we one of the real lies we tell ourselves, one of the most disempowering things we tell ourselves is we're the only ones going through it. And if someone else found out, we'd lose everything. And it's just not true. It's just a thought. It's not the truth. And there are men and women who are doing what you're doing, who have done what you've done, and they'll take you at face value 
they won't even blink. You just got to find them and tell your story to them and shed the shame. And they're out there. You just got to find them. And it was just one of the most liberating experiences of my life to go, oh, I'm not a freak. Oh, there's a bunch of people like me. Oh, I'm not that special. And I'll never forget telling one of my friends one day, you're not that special. You're just an alcoholic. And there's millions of others just like you. Misfits who have gotten sober. You do not have to reinvent the Like, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's some pretty straightforward ways if you put in the effort and you're willing and you pray and you pray for that willingness when you don't have it. There's a way out. There is always a way out through every obstacle. There's a way out and you're not alone. You don't have to do it yourself. And in fact, you weren't designed to. So stop trying. And I love you. Well, you have um, a, a way to bring hope and healing. I recognize you haven't had any official religious training, um, but you have a way through what you're doing to sort of perform <laughs> a ministering is the word we use in our church, ministering service. Mm. Um, I think you're on a mission from God, Tim. And you don't have... Thank you. you don't I appreciate have, that something in your office that says that <laughs> but um in this podcast and through what you're doing you're bringing hope and healing and i think god is smiling because you're helping him accomplish his objectives through what you're doing um talk about we're going to do two more segments listeners um you've got um, three kids two living let's talk about you're a parent of a bisexual daughter um, so many mm -hmm. parents that are in the LDS or the Mormon church, we're kind of doing a rebranding at our church, Tim, that maybe um, we're moving a little bit from the Mormon church to the, um, calling ourselves Latter-day Saints. That's why, just FYI, okay. um, that's why I'll probably refer to us as Latter-day Saints. And most <laughs> still know us as Mormons, but that's another story. Anyway, there's a lot of Latter-day Saint parents on listening that also have LGBTQ children just share with um, our listeners uh, your story. Sure. So um, my daughter, Allie, is 14, um, and she identifies proudly as bisexual. She just graduated eighth grade. Uh, I'm a proud uh, parent of a bisexual. Her mama is a proud mama. Um, we couldn't be more proud of her. We think she's just the most amazing woman, uh, young woman. Holy cow. She's amazing. My daughter's amazing. And um, it's pretty fascinating because we are in a church called uh, Christian Church Disciples of Christ. It's a denomination, a Protestant denomination. It's very progressive, like really, really, really the opposite of conservative. So we are just completely open and affirming in our church and uh, all are welcome in our church. And uh, that's just God's beloved or God's beloved and all are welcome. That's basically our, our tenant. And um, to become a member, it's basically like, uh, are you striving to follow the teachings of Jesus and be God's hands and feet on the planet and, and love as, as, as Jesus loved? Yeah. All right. Welcome. So that's, that's the church we go to. But the church, my, the, the school that my kids are in is a Lutheran school uh, because Lutheran they've got education like nailed. They're just really good at delivering a edu good education in the public school near us. The, the cracks 
Allie was falling through the cracks and getting bullied and having problems. And so we switched schools and we knew we were switching faiths, like if you will, right? So we knew that she by day at school was going to be immersed inside of uh, the Lutheran Missouri Synod, which is kind of the conservative Lutheran doctrine. Um, I had to sign a covenant of understanding as a parent that these are the things we believe, these are the things we teach, and we had to have some, you know, tender conversations about the role of science and research and, you know, 21st century technology and understanding based on science and crashed against their belief that the, you know, their belief in the Bible being a factual, infallible, you know, basically historically accurate document. So that was pretty fascinating, right? And, uh, but here's where it got good was Lutherans are not open and affirming. They are not pro same-sex marriage. They are, I don't really know how to articulate accurately what their position is, so I won't. But let's just say that um, when Allie started to notice that she was bisexual, she talked about it because, well, in our church, we talk about sexuality and like it's, you know, your hair color. Like, you didn't pick your hair color. You didn't pick your sexuality. And not everybody believes that. People, some people believe you actually pick your sexuality. And I just would love the person who's listening to my voice to just go back in time and remember the decision they made, where they were, what information they had, where they decided what team they were on. Because... As far as research goes, the research shows sexuality exists on a continuum and that it's not a, a light switch at all. It's a dimmer switch. And so I'll, I don't remember when I suddenly started finding, you know, girls attractive, but I do remember that when I was in seventh grade, you know, girls were attractive. When I was in sixth grade, baseball was attractive. <laughs> like I was into sports. And then suddenly, girls. Can't explain it, right? So Allie had the same experience, but for her, it was both. And so she talked about it at school like it was nothing. But she was a transfer into the school in fifth grade, and these other kids had grown up inside of this binary, good, bad, right, wrong, kind of uh, white, black thinking. And kids started bullying her and quoting the Bible as they saw fit. Uh, to say that she was going to hell. And now I have an 11-year-old who's being told she's going to hell by kids uh, in school. And so it was pretty fascinating that, you know, we have one church where on Sunday you can go and feel totally accepted, and then you go to another Christian church, both Protestants, and on Monday morning you can walk into that school, and now you're being bullied for being the same person. And so it, it started to create a challenge for us because obviously we're not going to tolerate anybody bullying her over her sexuality, and we had to get involved. And I will say, to their credit, the administration got involved very quickly and stopped people from doing that. But what it did is it kind of pointed out that different faiths have their own culture. And what I mean by that is they have their own set of beliefs that they hold as truth. They don't look at them as beliefs. They know for them, that's the way it is. And they are like, it's like um, a lie detector test. You, they pass a lie detector test that this is the truth. 
Well, the funny thing is that you ask anyone within their own religion, if their religion is their religion, they're going to pass that same lie detector test. They believe that as truth. That's the culture of faith. So when you step outside of it as an observer, you can see it happening, but it's really hard when you're in the middle of it. But because, A, I was raised in one religion, Catholics, which Catholics are Christians, just in case anyone's confused, because a lot of times people, they're like, yeah, but they're not Christian. No, they still believe Christ is the Savior. So um, they have a different culture than Protestants. And even within the Protestants, there are vastly different cultures of faith and belief in there. Um, I think one of the, maybe it's Methodists right now, are going through a, yeah. uh, a schism. Yeah. I think that's the Methodists, right? Yeah. So that that crisis of culture, like they they just cannot reconcile their differences, so they're going to split in two. And so we would have, Richard, just the most amazing dinner conversations where my son, who's now eight, my daughter, who's now 14, let's go back, let's say, two years. So she's 12. He's six. And we're sitting at the dinner table on a nightly basis talking about the importance of respecting other people's faith and boundaries and the importance of our own faith and being able to decide for us what we believe and seeing the difference between the two. Because we'd have to, like, at the dinner table, compare and contrast, like, on a regular basis, because she's in catechism class, and she's saying, well, the Lutherans believe this. And we're like, well, that's what the Lutherans believe, and this is what the Catholics believe, and this is what we believe in our church. And it's important to honor that everybody, you know, really believes that for themselves, and you give them that space. But, Callie, ultimately, you're going to become a certain age and you're either going to stay in the church you grew up in, or you're just going to walk out the door. And that's what happens to a lot of people. They just walk out the door. They're just like, you know what? No. And I can't take this anymore. And that's what I did as a Catholic. I was, you know, super, super, super there. And then finally, I just couldn't, couldn't reconcile any longer and just walked away. I said, but at, at some point, Allie, in your heart, you're going to have a relationship, a personal relationship with God. And no one can tell you that that exists if you don't believe it. And no one can tell you it doesn't exist if you do. That's yours. And you get to find a community where you feel safe and you feel connected to God. And that's what church for me is all about. It's being in a community where you feel safe and connected. You can be connected through each other. You can be connected directly. But most importantly, if you don't feel safe for who you are, then there's no point in trying to find God there because there's somewhere else out there where you'll feel safe and you'll find that connection. And so just being able to have conversations like that at the dinner table uh, has been wonderful and, and challenging for like, you know, when do you fight? When do you just let stuff blow over? She's having to struggle with when does she, like when is it appropriate to talk about your sexuality at school in the first place? It's not even appropriate. But the challenges in our culture, and I think this is a big thing other parents are going to get, sexuality is also in our culture identity. And so that's where we got to be careful because, you know, gender identity and sexuality, two different things, yeah. right? And so your gender is your gender, but in our culture, we create identity out of our gender. Your sexuality is just your sexuality. It doesn't really matter what team you play for. It's, it's nobody's business. 
But in our culture, we just make it our business and we make it an identity piece. And so like, where do you set up? And, and I think one of the things that her, her principal said, who I, I love and respect this man, and, you know, we don't necessarily believe the same things, but he said, you know, Allie, there is a time and a place for sharing your sexual identity, and you're going to, you know, be in work circumstances, academic circumstances throughout your whole life where you're going to be having to work, do business, learn, teach people who don't believe the same as you, and that doesn't need to stop you from being in a relationship with them. But you just have to start to figure out where you're going to share, where it's relevant, where it's not, and and just have to figure that out for yourself. And so I think a lot of middle school for her has been trying to understand my sexuality. Is my sexuality my identity? And, you know, the challenge with culture is culture is like the water to a fish. So if the water to a fish is dirty, that fish isn't as healthy. Right. So the fish doesn't see the water, but the water affects the fish. And so culture for kids, like culture says, your sexuality is your identity. That's like, well, no, it's just so you find sexually attractive. But we've kind of conflated sexuality with identity. So now how do we make space for something like if people don't understand or agree, how do we tease those out? And I don't you know, I don't have an answer for that. But the biggest thing that I try to just leave her with is who you are is whole, it's complete, it's beautiful, and your job is to figure out who you feel safe and whole and complete and connected to and around. And those are the people I recommend you hang with. And if you do not feel safe, whole, and complete around a group of people, you do not hang out with them in your life because that culture will influence you and your own self-esteem. And so you're going to have to really stand guard at, you know, who you let, uh, you know, influence and who you let be around you. And if that's like, if that's a church that's telling you that you're wrong for being who you are, like, I'm sorry, but I don't, I, I gotta, I think that's a fundamental issue. Like, I, I really think like, how could God possibly be this all amazing thing loves all his children and then create them and what people call like defective like there's things i hear people say about uh people in the lgbt community i'm like oh my god because there's no way you can hold those two truths in the same sentence like god loves all his children he they're his so their identity is safe their identity is whole their identity is complete we are not gonna even talk about that and it breaks my heart you know, when uh, when kids feel like there's there's something wrong with the who they are. I love that. I love that this 14-year-old girl, your daughter, is having these kind of conversations with her parents and her family. And I just, I wish every LGBTQ 14-year-old, 13-year-old, um, and older were in families where they could have these discussions and feel safe sharing this part about them. Because as you know, mm. a lot of children are not opening up and the shame and the self-loathing and the feeling of being defective yep. um, adds to their burden. And I just think totally. your daughter is likely in a very good spot emotionally and the advice you're giving to her is very healthy. And my feelings the same about God as I've met with LGBTQ 
um, particularly LDS, LGBTQ, I've just felt I've met with some of God's finest children, but they have a difficult road. Mm. Our church is, you know, our church, um, like, it's interesting to hear you talk about um, a few churches along the way here, and I recognize that every Christian church and probably all faith traditions are navigating reconciling that, you know, the science is helping us understand this is hardwired. This is how people come. They can't change it. So what's the messages have been in the past, as you know, you can sort of change this and it's sort of on you, but as we're facing the, the truth that, you know, this is something now that's on us to figure out how to meet the needs of LGBTQ members of our congregation and how to have them have the same experiences as straight members and the same hope and the same dreams, it's then it bucks up against culture and and in our church it bucks up against doctrine. Our doctrine is marriage is between man and a woman. Um, even as individual members of our church support legal same-sex marriage, which doesn't get you in trouble with our church, but our church is the doctrine of our church is marriage between man and a woman. And some members of our church um, feel like maybe we ought to eventually get to a different point. And I just, as my listeners know, I support our leaders as they figure that out and struggle with that. But we've made some progress. We recognize that um, this is how people are and there's no sin in orientation. There's no sin in identifying as LGBTQ. That's something that can't change. It's something they didn't do to cause that. It's like being blue-eyed or left-handed. Yeah. It's part Great. of the beautiful way that God creates his children. And and those beautiful, diverse attributes, we're learning in our culture to value those and to recognize in Corinthians 12, we need our LGBTQ members to become the body of Christ. But we have, you know, like all faith traditions, a ways to go um, to help people like your daughter feel welcome and, and culturally feel like people like them are valued and needed members. So... Um, I want to, I'd love to end this segment with either your final thoughts or advice you give to other parents of an LGBTQ child. And you've kind of done that as you've talked about this, but just any final comments along those lines, Tim? Yeah, thanks. Here's, here's the thing. When your kid feels safe, they connect. So, if your kid is up in their room listening to music and not talking to you, it's because they feel more connected to their music than they do to you. And that's because the music doesn't lecture them. It doesn't judge them. It doesn't scold them. It doesn't betray them. Um, it accepts them exactly with who they are, what they're thinking, what they're feeling. It doesn't stop if they can't hit the note or remember the lyric or keep up with the beat. It just accepts them exactly the way they are. And that's all they're looking for. They want secure attachment to something outside of themselves. And so the best thing you can do for your kid is be compassionately curious. <laughs> just be interested. Just be interested. Don't Their music's not written for you, so don't try to understand it or even like it. But just be interested in what they're listening to. Because I will tell you what the research shows is that, you know, kids will like the type of music a kid is listening to doesn't cause them to be in a certain uh, mood or uh, depressed state. But if they're in a depressed state, they'll reach for a certain type of music. So it kind of gives you a clue what they're resonating with. 
because if you're in a good mood, you don't want to listen to sad lyrics. They don't match. If you're feeling really sad and, and despondent, you're going to reach for music that resonates with your mood state. So just be curious. And if you can practice letting go of any attachment to what they say, the degree to which you can do that is the degree to which they'll begin to trust you again. And if they're still talking, that's the way to keep them talking. It's just not to have an opinion. It's just to thank them for sharing. That's all you want from them is just for them to just keep sharing. It's not your job to be the judge and jury. They just want a trusted advisor. Wow, I love that. I love this line, be compassionately curious. What a great mm. um, thing for a parent to be approaching their children. Great insights. That was a beautiful segment. I want to we try to keep these to 80 minutes or less. We've got about 12 minutes, but we're, that's not a hard stop. I really want to make sure we spend time talking about your daughter. She is 11 years old today, but she is in heaven. Um, mm -hmm. So introduce us to her, our listeners, and and I especially want to get to this home that you moved into and how God's kind of kept you connected to her. So I'd love you first just to introduce us to this wonderful daughter who's not here on earth. Sure. So in 2009, my wife gave birth to our second daughter named Bella, and she passed away in 2010 from a rare fatal skin disease called epidermolysis bullosa, or EB for short. It's a very rare genetic disease where your body fails to produce one single protein that's responsible for holding your skin together. It's like Velcro. So you have Velcro that holds your skin to your body, and you have Velcro in between the different layers of your skin. They're called anchoring fibrils, and they work exactly the same way as Velcro. And just like for someone with a bleeding disorder, they're, they're missing one protein that clots their blood. A person with EB is missing one protein that binds their skin to itself and to their body. So it just peels off um, with like the slightest touch or rub or bump, and it can separate between the layers and you get these crazy blisters where all the, the, you know, just fluid fills into that spot or the skin just peels right off. It was totally undiagnosed in the womb because it's a soft tissue disease. So you don't, it doesn't show up on um, any of the ultrasounds. We didn't have any family history of it um, because it's super rare. And so uh, it was an immediate left turn and um I will say it was, you know, one of, like my friend's murder, it was one of the most traumatic experiences was the day of her birth. And um, I, by the second day, I, I felt like I was losing touch with reality. I was in such trauma overload because of the enormity of the situation. But what's crazy is that I had just become a music therapist when she, she I finished in November of 2008 to become board certified. She's born in May of 2009. In January of 2009, I got a NICU certification to work in uh, the neonatal intensive care unit with preemies. Wow. Well, Bella and Bella ends up straight to the NICU right out of the OR from the C-section. And suddenly my daughter's my first patient. Wow. So if you don't believe in divine guidance, like, you know, here's, I'm going to give you like three upon six upon nine stories in a row here where you're just going to be like, oh my God. So she's my first patient. Now, 
I, as a music therapist, had learned techniques for how to use music in the neonatal ICU with preemies. And so I had a little uh, iPod at the time and a little battery-operated speaker that I could wipe down and I could wipe down the, cat, the iPod with like the uh, cavicide, like Clorox wipes. I go back to my wife's recovery room and I record her reading bedtime stories to Allie, which is what she would do every night while Bella was in the womb. And every night while they were doing that, I was playing Ave Maria on my classical guitar. And so in the OR or in the recovery room where my wife was recovering from her C-section, she reads Allie the bedtime stories. I play my guitar because I brought it with me. And uh, we recreate our nightly routine. And I wrote a birth song for Bella that I played every night to the womb because kids hear the world enter before they see it. Their ears develop in, in, uh, in the womb. And so for C-section babies, it's quite a start to their system. So having their birth song playing at the moment of the operation, they can hear the song so they know there's one thing they can kind of hone in on and, and kind of connect with. And so on a playlist, talk about power playlists, Richard. On the playlist, on the iPod, I put my wife reading bedtime stories and then speaking affirmations to Bella, talking to her as if she was holding her, and then her birth song. And I went back to the ICU with the iPod and the speaker, and I put them in her isolate because she was in a plastic box because she had a skin disease, so you couldn't touch her. Wow. But the, but the music could. So I had the music right behind her head. And while I wasn't there, she could listen to her mom's voice and she could listen to her daddy's guitar. And so she knew she wasn't alone, even though she was in a different building. And by day three, I was like, you know, this is just cosmic. There's no way that it's a coincidence that you're my first patient. There's, we had to like... We had to like figure this all out and it's like I came up with this like grandiose idea that we were all up in heaven and we decided we were going to play this game as a family. We'd be mom, Angie and me would be mom and dad. She'd be the, the kid and Allie would be the big sister. And then we all waved the men in black pen and we forgot. And then we came down here and all of it seemed real. So I just kind of made up this little, you know, context to this craziness just, just to keep me sane. And I said, you know what? this has got to be providence. This just has to be the grand orchestra conductor at work. There's no way. So I said, I'm all in on providence, Bella. I've decided that everything that's happening right now is ordained by God. This was all planned out and he is pulling the strings. So I'm just going to lean in. And every time stress strikes, I'm just going to lean in. And so I leave the hospital that day and I get in the little patient van to take me to the parking garage. And Richard, I look up and I'm on the corner of Providence Street. And behind the Providence Street sign, in giant letters on this building, it says the Providence Building. And that's when I knew I was in good hands. So every day, I just wrote a blog about her journey. It's at bellasblessings.com. It's still there because um, I just pulled a picture off of it today to post on Facebook. And uh, every day I just leaned in the good, the bad, and the providence story of the day. And of course, once you start to look for God's hands in anything, you see it. 
all you have to do is look. It's there. It's your job to look. And sometimes it's not readily available. And sometimes you just have to take it on faith that from this tiny little elevation as a human, you actually can't quite see the whole picture. And that's what faith's all about. Faith starts at the point where you can't see anymore for yourself. And so I just had the most extraordinary faith journey every day of her 17-month life and leaned in. And every morning, prayed to God, said, hold my fear. And he'd hold it for me. And I'd go be with her. And she was in the ICU for the last 99 days of her life. And I was in there every day with her. And the moment her heart stopped, her song came on the iPod right in the middle of the playlist. And so I got to actually sing her back to heaven, just like I got to sing her here when she was born. And the first, the first, you know, the operation, like I planned that, but God planned the reprise. And so it, I just knew the whole journey. It was just, God was there through the whole journey. And, uh, and so here's what happened. It's her birthday, right? So my favorite tree in Southern California is the jacaranda. It's this crazy purple tree that explodes with purple flowers for like one month out of the year. And then it has kind of like lane, light green flower uh, uh, tree for the rest of the year. We buy this house in April of 2014. And I'm like, there's this hill in the backyard. I was like, you know, as soon as we move in, I'm planting a jacaranda tree. We closed a month later and we closed on her birthday today. We got the keys on her birthday. With her urn, which was like violet purple. With her urn. Um, her urn is where her ashes are. Yeah. So with her urn, um, we come over to the new house with the keys, her urn, a birthday cake, and a balloon. And butterflies are the symbol of EB because uh, their EB kid's skin is as soft as a butterfly's wing. So um, it's a flower, it's a butterfly shaped. Uh, balloon, it's a butterfly-shaped cake, and the first person to cross the threshold into the new house is Bella. But here's the best part. That tree that's in the side yard, it wasn't in bloom in April when we bought the house, but when we closed and we drove up, it was a jacaranda, and it was in full bloom, and all these light violet-purple flowers were falling from the tree, and that was Bella's color. It was the color of her uh, urn. It was the color of the balloon we got her. And I still have pictures to this day of Allie sitting under that tree, tossing these flowers in the air as they're falling from the tree. So every morning as a habit, a practice, I go out and I hug that tree barefoot as just a grounding technique. And I shared that story today on Facebook. And someone wrote back and said, Tim, I've never heard of jacaranda trees. So I looked them up. It turns out they're the symbol of rebirth and their flowers attract butterflies. Wow. So while you've been hugging that tree every morning, you've really been hugging your daughter. Wow. And that was just the greatest. It's her birthday and I got the gift. So the moral of the story is if you look for God's hand, most of the time you're going to find it. And the times you don't, you just got to remember, you might not just be able to see it from your elevation, but he's there and he's got you. Wow. So touched by so many things you said in that. I wrote down this line, I got to, I got to sing her back to heaven. I've never 
thought of that. I've never heard that phrase in relation to a dear loved one, in this case, your daughter Bella, going back to heaven. Mm -hmm. And your role yeah. being in the ICU all those days. And um, as I mentioned to Tim before the podcast, I flew into L.A. yesterday and drove with one of our sons back to Salt Lake in a car. And as I was looking out the window flying into LAX on this May day, I noticed these purple trees, <laughs> this light violet purple, and I'm sure they were jacaranda trees, and I'd never have noticed them before. That's it. And they were beautiful. That's it. it. They're violet, exploding. Pale, yeah, they're exploding right now. Everywhere. It's beautiful. And it, yep. And so to have your home have one of the trees in blossom um, with the flowers falling on the day you close in that home, bringing Bella home in that urn. God is good, and God loves all of his children. One of the things I've learned is, you know, the God I believe in wants to bless all of his children. Um, whatever mm -hmm. faith tradition they're in, he loves them, and he wants them to feel love and support. And as, you know, and so I love the same God that we both believe in walks with us, and I, we, I don't know if you can repeat this line, but you just said something that I didn't write down. And now I'm putting you on the spot. But you said if if you don't see him, you but you said something that gave me hope that he's there. Do you do you remember what you said? Yeah, you know, you well, you just gotta trust that you just can't see his hand from your elevation. Yeah, you can't see so his hand. As, from... as a human being, you know, you're just a tiny little ant on a rock spinning through cold, dark space. What do you know? <laughs> so no offense, you know, people, but here, oh, okay. So one last story. Sorry, listeners. I'm, I'm in Minneapolis. That's where she was getting treated. And every morning I would go to the same park bench and I would read the blog comments from the night before his post. And then I would pray and then I would walk into the ICU. And this one morning, Richard, I'm praying and God says to me, I'm taking her home. And I say, you what? You, no, 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 no. You didn't just bring me all the way to Minneapolis through everything. I didn't just write a book on Providence for me to come home empty-handed. And he said, look down. So I look down. And in the grooves of the sidewalk, there's a bunch of ants. They're using the little groove as their little highway. He's like, can you see the ants? I go, yep. He goes, look up. I look up. And from my vantage point, I can see the Minneapolis skyline. He says, can you see what they see. And I said, no. He goes, but you're in the same reality, right? Yeah, what do you mean? Well, if you stepped on them, you'd change their reality pretty quick, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. Can they see what you see? No. He said, my son, sometimes you can't see what I can see. It's not your job. You got to trust me. That was it. That was the humble pie wow. that I needed. That was the humble pie I needed at some times. Because, come on, Richard, COVID-19, we're all kind of scratching our head. Okay, God, what's your plan? But there's an arrogance, a fundamental arrogance as humans, which is that because we can think rationally, we could understand the mind of God, which is a fool's errand because it's just levels of awareness. We're at a level of awareness as a human being, walking around on a planet, spinning through cold black space. We're at a level of awareness. 
that's all. And we can see some things from our elevation. And I'm willing to, you know, that, that you know, there's plenty we can't, that only will be revealed later. And then we'll be like, oh, that's what you were doing. Oh, well played, sir. See, I didn't see that at all. Man, that was good. And that's the game that I play, and that gives me hope. And that, that's what keeps me up. That's what gets me up in the morning. It kind of inspires me to be my best self during the day, and that's what allows me to calm my brain enough to fall asleep at night. I love your word. I love that segment, Tim. I love your use of the word elevation. And that, mm. and the principle that teaches that God is there and He has a plan, but sometimes at our elevation we can't see that. I love the visual imagery of that, that the plan's still there and He's still there, but from our perspective or vantage point or elevation, in our faith we have this belief in a pre-mortal life, a pre-existence, so we live as spirits with God. We actually believe in mm-hmm. a heavenly father and a heavenly mother in our church. We actually believe we have co-parent, mm-hmm. heavenly parents. Um, and we believe in that rat realm as spirits that we chose to come to earth live to um, have a mortal experience in a physical body. And the lessons mm-hmm. that, that would teach us as part of our progression. So we kind of look at mortality as act two of a three act play, so to speak. But because of that belief, which I think a lot of Christians probably generally believe they lived before, or they just didn't start strictly with right. birth. There's some, they came from somewhere, Something. at least their spirit did. And that's, but that sort of gives us a perspective there that's very similar to what you're saying is often in the moment, you can't see that three-act play or you don't have the perspective to understand what a loving God is doing with COVID or with the daughter Bella. Why would he take a beautiful daughter like Bella home? You know, your podcast yeah. and your ministry helps other parents that have lost a child, um, especially when the very best medical help was available and you did everything you could and this perfect little girl is gone. Why would a loving God do that? And I love your faith that you recognize that in some way this is, um, there's a purpose in this. And maybe part of the purpose is your ability now to heal and give hope to other parents that go through very difficult things. But I don't know that's God's will, so I don't want to project that. But it's possible you know that and have will learn that. So um, we could go on forever, but um, I want you to close with any final thoughts. And I also think you're going to invite our listeners um about a free gift that's available on your website. So why don't you go wherever you want to go now, Tim? Okay. Well, I appreciate that because, yeah, I, it's, uh, I can smell dinner in the other room. <laughs> so um, I'm sure I, I, I'm being called. So I want to just give everybody a free gift. Um, as a music therapist, you know, I've been working with patients and clients now for since 2008, I've you know I've worked with thousands of patients and clients, teens, adults, kids, elderly. And there's one particular technique that I've been using over the years to help people kind of take a break from the present moment if the present moment is where the stress is. And you know, let's be honest, when we get stressed, remember I don't know if you remember the old uh, TV commercial, Calgon, take me away. You know, sometimes we just want to escape, and that's what we're numbing out. We're just trying to escape. And I think you even mentioned that when you were first describing, you know, the 
kids who you've ministered to, that's what they're, they're trying to do is escape a, a stressful moment or a painful presence. So this tool, it's called the Relaxation Vacation. And what you're going to do is on my website, which is just timringgold.com. It's like the two words, ring gold with two Gs, timringgold.com. You're going to go there and you'll see my bald head and it says, reach for music. And then right away, it'll say, would you like to take a relaxation vacation? And your answer will be, why, yes, Tim, I'd love to take a relaxation vacation because I'm not allowed to take any other kind of vacation right now. So you'll put your name and your email address in, and I'm going to give you uh, this experience. And basically what it is, is it's me walking you with slow tempo, comforting music to a place in your past where you felt happy, healthy, safe, connected, and reliving that experience and then bringing those feelings back into the stressful present so you can be at your best. So if that sounds like that would be useful to you, just go to my website and just add your name and email address there, and I will serve it up to you. That's great. And our listeners, again, that's Tim Ring Gold. Really easy website, timringgold.com. And, yeah, you will see a guy with a bald head. So, <laughs> And um, I love the way you own that part of who you are, Tim. Uh, <laughs> So on behalf of all our listeners, challenged. <laughs> on behalf of our listeners, um, the eight or 10, 12,000 that listen to every episode, it's people like Tim that come on and are willing to talk about complicated issues and give us better til- perspective tools. So you have a unique life ministry, Tim, within your family and within your profession. And I call this a ministry. Um I think you're on God's errand in a very unique and wonderful and authentic way. And on behalf of all our listeners, thank you, Tim, for joining us. And this is Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.